Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. J is for John Lennon. Yeah, not all rock stars know each other straight away, of course. Uh, And this was certainly true in the case of John Lennon and David Bowie. Even though each had been famous for a long time, the pair didn't actually meet until Lennon came to Hollywood in 1974 with his then-girlfriend, May Pang. Uh, Pang recalled later on that she'd gone to a Hollywood party with John, hosted by Elizabeth Taylor. And her guests included Elton John, amongst others, and, of course, David Bowie. We know the story about Bowie and Liz Taylor, anyway. We've done that, haven't we? We've done that. But anyway, when John Lennon heard there was a party at Elizabeth Taylor's, he wanted to go, naturally. And uh, and he loved the old Hollywood stars. And so he, he was probably a bit starstruck, wasn't Definitely, he? definitely. Uh, Pang, incidentally, remained friendly with Bowie afterwards and appeared a couple of years later in one of his videos. Actually, it was fashion, wasn't it, she's in? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and she married his producer, Tony Visconti, and had two children together. So we're kind of going to go through now the sort of... Uh, um, the mentions or the kind of the cross-pollination between Lennon and Bowie, aren't we? So, for example, John Lennon is mentioned in Life on Mars. You know, Lennon's on sale again. Yeah, there is a cover of Working Class Hero on the first Tim Machine album. You'd have to say, I mean, there's not a lot of point in covering Working Class Hero because no. it's absolutely <laughs> perfect in the beginning. But anyway. Yeah, anyway, he did it. So Bowie's early band, The Hype, uh, performed Instant Karma live in 1970. Another of his band's feathers, we know them well, did a version of Strawberry Feels Forever. Bowie also did a cabaret show in 1968, which featured When I'm 64 and Yellow Submarine. Really? Okay. Uh, And this boy was covered by Ziggy and the Spiders on a few dates in 1972, and there are bootlegs of these recordings, so it seems unlikely, but they do exist. Yeah, and then, of course, we get to uh, Young Americans, and there is a cover of Across the Universe on there. And the co-write of Fame. Yeah, I read the news today, oh boy, is the vamp that uh, happens towards the end of Young Americans. Yeah, so uh, Tony Visconti, who produced the Young Americans albums, though not the Lennon bits, obviously. Mm. Married May Pang in 1989 and was married to Mary Hopkin yeah. before her, who did the do do whatever song that is. It all relates sound of vision. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> Bowie performed Imagine on the final date of his serious Moonlight tour, which was the third anniversary of Lennon's death. Yeah, and there's a cover of Mother by Bowie, recorded in 1998 for a Yoko-arranged tribute album to John, which was never released but leaked online in 2006. Mm. Okay, Lennon, Ono and Bowie were photographed together at the 17th Grammy Awards in 1975, more of which in a bit. Yeah, very famous uh, photograph also with Simon and Garfunkel on there. Yeah, indeed. So here's another thing. So Uncle Floyd uh, enjoyed its first flush of success on the WTVG 
Channel in the 1970s in the States when it began to attract wider media attention and enticed uh, guest bands like Squeeze and the Ramones to perform in the studio. During one recording in 1980, the show's performance were astonished to see David Bowie in the studio audience singing and clapping along to the signature song <laughs> Deep in the Heart of Jersey. So apparently David went backstage afterwards to tell the cast how much he loved the show, revealing that he watched it every night during the makeup sessions for The Elephant Man. Wow. We've been there again. Yeah. But he said uh, uh, when they were uh, the flabbergasted performers inquired as to how he'd first come across the show, he told them he'd been introduced to it by another fan, John Lennon. What are the chances? It's just bizarre. Rem- remarkable. So some quotes here. This is David Bowie talking about John Lennon. He said, It's impossible for me to talk about popular music without mentioning probably my greatest mentor, John Lennon. I guess he defined, for me at any rate, how one could twist and turn the fabric of pop and imbue it with elements from other art forms, often producing something extremely beautiful, very powerful, and imbued with strangeness. Also, uninvited, John would wax on endlessly about any topic under the sun and was over-endowed with opinions. No. Uh, I immediately felt empathy with that. Whenever the two of us got together, it started to resemble a beavis and butthead on crossfire. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is David Bowie that we're talking about yeah. here. Uh, the seductive thing about John, he says, was his sense of humour. Surrealistically enough, we were first introduced in about 1974 by Elizabeth Taylor. Miss Taylor had been trying to get me to make a movie with her. Mm. It involved going to Russia and wearing something red, gold and diaphanous. <laughs> Not terribly encouraging, really. I can't remember what it was called. It wasn't on the waterfront anyway. I know that. Well, like it. He says, we were we were in L.A. and one night she had a party to which both John and I had been invited, as we mentioned earlier. I think we were polite with each other in that kind of older, younger way. Although there were only a few years between us, in rock and roll, that's a generation. Oh boy, is it ever. Yeah, so John was sort of, and now it says in a Liverpool accent here, but I oh. won't do it. Oh. Uh, oh, here comes another new one. As if I was sort of, it's John Lennon. I don't know what to say. Don't mention the Beatles, you'll look really <laughs> stupid. And he said, hello, Dave. And I said, I've got everything you've made. Except the Beatles. <laughs> That's one way of trying to avoid it. <laughs> uh, a couple of nights later, Bowie continued, we found ourselves backstage at the Grammys where I had to present the thing, obviously the trophy, to uh, Aretha Franklin. Before the show, I'd been telling John that I didn't think America really got what I did, that I was misunderstood. Remember that I was in my 20s and out of my head. Yeah, now this is remarkable. Yeah. So the big moment came and I ripped open the envelope and announced the winner is... Aretha Franklin. Aretha steps forward and with not so much as a glance in my direction, snatches the trophy out of my hand and says, thank you everybody, I'm so happy I could even kiss David Bowie. Which she didn't and she promptly spun around, swanned off stage right, so I slunk off stage left. It's a great story that is. I mean, yeah, that is quite a famous story, isn't it, about uh, kind of snubbing Bowie in that respect, you know, it's a it weird It must have one. really hurt him that because yeah. he, he idolised her, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, of course, yeah. So Bowie continues, says, uh, after they said, uh, John bounds over and gives me a theatrical kiss and a hug and says, see, Dave, America loves you. We've pretty much gone on like a house on fire after that. John Lennon also once famously described glam rock as just rock and roll with lipstick on. Uh, he was wrong, of course, but it was very funny. That's what Bowie says. Yeah, and then Bowie sort of continued, said, towards the end of the 70s, a group of us went off to Hong Kong on a holiday and John was in, well, in a sort of house husband mode and wanted to show uh, Sean, his son, the world. And during one of our expeditions on the back streets, a kid comes running up to him and says, are you John Lennon? And he said, no, but I wish I had his money, which I promptly stole myself. This is great. So uh, this is a game. Bowie continuing, are you 
Davy Bowie? No, but I wish I had his money. It's brilliant. It was such a wonderful thing to say. The kid said, oh, sorry, of course you aren't, and ran off. And I thought, this is the most effective device I've ever heard. Yeah. I was back in New York a couple of months later in Soho, downtown, and a voice pipes up in my ear. Are you Davy Bowie? And I said, no, but I wish I had his money. You lying bastard. <laughs> you wish you had my money. It was John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Great. Uh, now we continue. So one night in New York in 1974, uh, Lennon, whom Bowie had recently met at the party, of course, Elizabeth Taylor's place, brought Maypang and Paul and Linda McCartney over to see him. OK, so Bowie played them songs from Young Americans, not once but twice, whereupon Paul asked for another album to be put on instead. <laughs> That's a famous episode. I uh, know. Well. Bowie was hurt, left the room. Lennon later mollified him with a phone call and the pair became friends. Yeah, so uh, Lennon, along with Mick Jagger, would advise Bowie on his business dealings in the 70s, which were problematic, to put it mm. mildly. Uh, when Bowie was popular and had little cash to show for it, but as close as they became, there was still an element of competition. Yeah, also when Bowie and Lennon co-wrote and recorded Fame, which was a, you know, a late addition to Young Americans, he played the first cut to his movie agent, Maggie Abbott, and she remembered the track was really great, John and him singing. When it was released, I noticed that John's voice was less prominent in the final cut. Ooh. I guess David just wanted to downplay John in favour of himself. Yeah, OK, and according to May Pang, Bowie went into shock at the news of Lennon's assassination, lest we forget he was doing the Elephant Man at the time, wasn't mm. he? Uh, she said he began screaming, what the hell, what the F is going on in the world? Not just once, but many, many times. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, the story, my story of um, and Bowie and uh, and the Beatles was uh, the last time I got to interview David, uh, oh. when I have told it before, but when mm. he, when he, uh, he, not even started the interview, and he goes, and he just starts, there's a knock on the door. Oh, yeah, who is it? Uh, well, it's uh, John and Paul. Oh, is it? Right, OK. And then he goes into this mad thing about uh, how he suggested that both uh, <laughs> Paul McCartney and John Lennon wanted to start a supergroup with Davy Bowie. Oh. And I asked him what it was going to be called, and he said, uh, Davy Bowie and the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. That's probably my most kind of fond memory of having met David over all the years, you know. Yeah, but it was brilliant. Yeah, it's just terrific, that interview. So we've already mentioned that great shot of them. Uh, there's Yoko, as Paul Simon as well at those, at those great... Grammy Awards, wasn't it, in 75, and Art, Art Garfunkel, of course, Rita right. Franklin, uh, steering clear of Bowie and John Lennon. And then, after Bowie's passing, Yoko kind of talked to Rolling Stone, didn't she? She did, yes. She said, uh, following on from the death of Davy Bowie, Yoko Ono penned a heartfelt tribute to the rocker she considered a good friend as well as a father figure to her son after John Lennon's death. And this is what she said. John and David respected each other. Uh, they were all matched in intellect and talent. As John and I had very few friends, we felt David was as close as family. Wow, that's really touching. I mean, that is the thing, isn't it? How, you know, you're letting people into your world, aren't you? And if you're mm. John Lennon, you would have to be suspicious about an awful lot of people's motivations about wanting to be your mate. But yeah. when you've got somebody as famous as uh, David Bowie, then you, you can't, you're kind of on the same yeah. page. I mean, let's face it, who's on the same page as John Lennon, really, apart yeah. from Paul McCartney and, if you go back in time, Elvis. But David Bowie was obviously certainly up there. Yeah, definitely. The trust was there, wasn't it? And I know, you know, they didn't collaborate again after 75, did they? But they did remain close until uh, Lennon's death in 1980. Yeah. After John died, David was always there for Sean and me, said Yoko. When Sean was at boarding school in Switzerland, David would pick him up and take him on trips to museums and let Sean hang out at his recording studio in Geneva. Oh, no, continued. Uh, for Sean, this is losing another father figure. It will be hard for him, I know, but we have some sweet memories which will stay with us forever. Yeah, and then on, um, on Instagram, Sean Lennon himself wrote about Bowie's death, said, absolutely devastating news. I feel so lucky to have considered you a friend. R.I.P. Thank you for everything. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. J is for Joe Bryath. 
Now, okay, we're going to start with uh, the independent report from this is the 12th of April 2004, okay? And they wrote, In July 1983, the New York Police Department sent three officers to smash open the pyramid that sits on top of the Chelsea Hotel in downtown Manhattan. The stench was so foul they all vomited. The man inside, the man with several names, had been dead and forgotten for over a week. In his 37-year-long life, he'd been many things, a tramp, a millionaire, a madman, a genius, a hustler called Bruce Campbell, and a rock star called Jabriath. Now he was gone and nobody seemed to care. Yeah, it continues. Only a decade before, he had dominated Times Square from a 40-foot billboard on the corner of Broadway. Jabriath was booked that Christmas to perform at the Paris Opera House, where he was to perform one of the most audacious rock stunts of the decade, addicted to rock stunts. Dressed as King Kong, he would climb a replica of the Empire State Building, only for the skyscraper to turn into a gigantic penis that would eject Jabriath onto a piano. He would land gracefully, slough off his King Kong costume and emerge as Marlena Dietrich. Mm. So, I mean, oh, where to begin? Where I know, to begin, it's really? so it's difficult to kind of summarise his career. It's, and going it, to be a, it's going to be a long section, this, it isn't is, it? Because it's it very is. involved and tragic. Yeah, it's dramatic and tragic, you're right. So, you know, what can we say about him? He was a shape-shifting creature. He took many forms. He's best known for being the first openly gay rock star, the man who took the latent homosexuality of glam rock and made it blatant. Blatant being the operative word, yeah. So, it's <laughs> a great quote, this. Jabriah didn't come out of the closet. He set fire to the closet and roasted pink marshmallows on the flames. For a flickering, shimmering moment, he was, according to Rolling Stone, the most promising thing in pop. I mean, he, well, there was a lot of hype, wasn't there? He transparently used Bowie's trailblazing use of uh, sexuality and theatrics. There's no doubt about that. His manager and lover was convinced that Jabriath was the American David Bowie. America ended up not being convinced. Yeah, he saw glam rock as an opportunity to openly display his homosexuality and his undoubted musical talent. And Bowie Bowie led that way for him. Yeah, so let's get into what he's all about. So Bruce Wayne Campbell, born December the 14th, 1946 in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, died August 4th, 1983, best known, of course, by his stage name Jabriath. And as we say, you know, a first openly gay rock musician to be signed to a major label and one of the first internationally famous musicians to uh, to succumb to AIDS. Right, OK. So uh, I've never even heard of this place, right? He was, a, he was a native of King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. That's an amazing sounding place. What? And raised in Houston, Texas, and he showed a talent for playing the piano and was introduced to Eugene Ormandy as a child prodigy. And he was conscripted into the military in the mid-60s and he went AWOL within months. So if you think about this, uh, the kind of character he was, outlandish and, and you know, and, and it, he, he just so open about being yeah. gay. To being brought up, I would imagine in a place called King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. And then Texas, you know, and really then, thinking here in and the then Texas and then into the army. Mm. I mean, that's a pretty that's a pretty brutal kind of introduction yeah. to the world, isn't it? Yeah, so re- he rebelled against that completely. So he renamed himself Jabriah Salisbury and moved to Los Angeles. When he arrived to play piano for a friend's audition for the musical Hair, he also secured the role of uh, Woof, an implicitly gay teenager, and he appeared in the West Coast production at the Aquarius Theatre on Sunset Boulevard. Yeah, but not for long. He left the production in 1969 to form the folk rock band Pigeon 
which was signed to Decca Records. So, I mean, you've got this really great outlandish character, and yeah. he's got a band called Pigeon. Oh, you that's know. incongruous, yeah. isn't it? Uh, they released a single, Rubber Bricks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and on. a self titled album before disbanding, and they were both produced by Stan Farber. Yeah. Okay, so at this time, he was chased by the military police and arrested, spending nearly six months in a military psychiatric hospital after suffering a breakdown. Oh. He, he, oh. I mean, this sounds like the kind of uh, screenplay that's been written by a, a pretty dark mind. Yeah, it? but it's of course. this poor man's life. Yeah, of course. So during this period, he began writing the songs that would lead to his next musical incarnation. So we skip forward here to December 1972. A guy called Jerry Brandt, who was Carly Simon's uh, former manager, overheard a demo tape being played at Clive Davis's place at uh, Columbia Records. Davis rejected the tape as mad, unstructured, and destructive to melody. Ouch. But Brandt was quick to step in. So Jabriath later remark, that coming from a man who discovered both Patti Smith and Barry Manilow, so much for sanity and structure. Right. It's a fair point. Yeah. Uh, Brand located Jabriath in California, where he was living in an unfurnished apartment and working as a prostitute. Blimey. Okay, so Brand said later, he said, in walked this beautiful creature dressed in white. I said, why don't you come out to Malibu and hang out? This became a feature of the mythology used to promote Jabriath and helps to explain the acrimony uh, that followed the dissolution of their professional and personal relationship. Okay, so Brandt signed Jabriath, now calling himself Jabriath Boone. Still not that outlandish, mm-hmm. but anyway, uh, to Electra Records for a reported $500,000. And that was allegedly the most lucrative recording contract of its time. This is mind blowing. Yeah. And the label's president was Davy Geffen, who signed him for a uh, two album deal. That's incredible. So a huge marketing campaign and media blitz ensued, including full-page ads in Vogue, Penthouse and Rolling Stone magazines, full-length posters on over 250 New York City buses and a huge 41 by 43 billboard in Times Square, all feature the forthcoming debut album sleeve, which was designed by the photographer uh, Shig Akida, which featured a nude Jabriath made to resemble an ancient Roman statue. (laughs) It, I, I remember at the time it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, the Aladdin saying in the sleep. Yeah. You know, yeah. not a million miles, mm. I would say. But anyway, uh, plans were announced for a lavish three night live debut at the Paris Opera that December at a cost of $200,000 and a subsequent tour of European opera houses. It's incredible, isn't it? Because you'd think, so you've got a new artist starting out. Okay, you see him as this colourful glam creature, you know, and, and want to kind of push him. But you'd put him on at the Troubadour or something. There was no kind of early steps, was it? It's just this big lavish operation going Did it, on. I mean, and it, and he was obviously a fragile character yeah. anyway, wasn't he? I mean, and again, probably quite egotistical. I mean, and, and like being the centre of attention, I'm mm. very brave with it. Um, so, I mean, maybe one part of him did like to think of the grandiose, you know, yeah. and just get carried away with it. Yeah, OK. But similar to Bowie in that, you know, willing himself to be a star before he was one. You yeah, know? yeah. So Electra, concerned about the spiralling production costs, naturally postponed the Paris Opera shows until February, later cancelling them all together due to expense. So amid all this barrage of promotion, the debut album, Gibraltar, was released, mostly getting positive reviews. Rolling Stone, for example, uh, reckoned Jabriath had talent to burn. Yeah, Cashbox called it truly one of the most interesting albums of the year, and Record World hailed it as brilliantly incisive, referring to Jabriath as a true Renaissance man who will gain a tremendous following. Esquire disagreed, calling it the hype of the year. Yeah, fair enough. You mm. know, the album was co-produced by Eddie Kramer and Jabriath, featuring uh, string arrangements by Jabriath, and recorded at Olympic Studios with the London Symphony Orchestra. 
Peter Frampton's also credited on the album, although his contribution is unclear. I'm guessing he played guitar on it. You would like to think so, <laughs> wouldn't you? Unless he was going... <laughs> probably not, though, eh? No, probably not. Probably not, no. So, during this period, Brandt continued making extravagant statements such as Elvis, The Beatles and Jabriath, and declaring that both he and Jabriath had booked flights on Pan America's first passenger flight to the moon. No. OK, so meanwhile, Jabriath declared himself rock's truest fairy, a comment that did little to increase his popularity at the time, uh, but has since confirmed his status as the first openly gay rock singer to be signed to a major label. Yeah, so Bowie, meanwhile, his earlier assertion that he was bisexual did little to help him in America. In the UK, it was seen as shocking, but also as exciting and candid yep. and all the rest of it, and very refreshing but Americans took less kindly to it. Jabriah's debut public show was made on uh, TV when Brandt secured him an appearance on the Midnight Special. The costumes were designed by Jabriah. The choreography was by uh, Joyce uh, Trisler of the Joffrey Ballet. Right, also um, keeping the standards up there, isn't it? Absolutely. Two songs were performed, I'm a Man and Rock of Ages, a latter substituting for Take Me, I'm Yours, which was pulled after the producer objected to its overtly sadomasochistic theme. See, so the long-awaited live performance finally came in the summer of 74 with two sold-out shows at the Bottom Line Club in New York. Sales for the album, however, were poor and it failed to uh, make the charts. Yeah, you can imagine a lot of people wanting to go uh, rubbernecking a little bit yeah. because it's, a, it's such a strange start to a career and such a striking character that you, you would say, right, I'm going to go and see what all this is about. Well, you would do. And then possibly be a little bit kind of underwhelmed yeah. on the night. Anyway, well, six months after the release of the debut album, Creatures of the Street was released, again featuring Peter Frampton as well as John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin. Wow, OK. So the photography was done by Jared Mankovich, who'd done all those great shots of Hendrix and the Stones, of course. Uh, the album had compiled from extensive uh, sessions for its predecessor. This is the thing. So the album's launched without any fanfare, no media promotion, and it failed dismally on a commercial mm. level, OK? An American tour followed, during which uh, recordings took place at local studios for a projected third album. Both Brandt and Elektra abandoned Jabriath midway, but despite this, the band completed the tour and continued to bill Elektra for all the expenses. A final gig at the University of Alabama ended in five encores and the fire department being summoned when the excited audience set off the alarm. So he started off with wanting to do it at the Paris Opera and ended up at the University of Alabama. <laughs> no offence, honestly. You know, it's just the, the, the career trajectory has just yeah. gone the, the other way that he probably wanted it, really. Yeah. So January 1975, lest we forget, uh, Bowie had reinvented himself and was about to enjoy his first US number one with fame. Mm. And Jabriath announced his retirement from the music industry and moved into a pyramid top rooftop apartment on the Chelsea Hotel in New York City, which is sadly where we came in. Yeah, of course. He said he attempted to to uh, resume his acting career, I didn't know this, and unsuccessfully auditioned for the role of Al Pacino's lover in the film uh, Dog Day Afternoon, where they do a heist, don't they, for, to pay for a sex, yeah. sex change operation, I think. That's right. And that John Cazale ended up being his lover. On, he was Is in that... the Godfather films, wasn't he? Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. Great actor. Uh, calling himself Cole Berlin, which is obviously a play on both Cole Porter and Irving Berlin, he worked as a cabaret singer at a restaurant called the Covent Gardens, as well as clubs, other cabarets, augmenting his income with occasional prostitution. Right. Okay, so by this time his 10 year contract with Brandt was finally up and Jabriath was sick with AIDS. It's such a tragedy. Mm. Uh, he began to feel ill in 1981 but still managed to contribute to the Chelsea Hotel's 100th birthday celebrations in the November of 1982. On August 4th, 1983, one week after the end of his original 10 year contract with Jerry Brandt expired, Jabriath died, becoming one of the first famous musicians to die of the disease. It is a tragic story. And yeah. So this is again here from the independent piece that we came in with. Uh, the US magazine Omega. 
Amiga 1, tracked Jabriath down in 1979, living in the pyramid that was to become his tomb. Uh, his personality appeared to have fractured into several conflicting shards. He described himself as schizophrenic and would only discuss Jabriath as a former personality who has, uh, has now died. He'd say, for example, Jabriath committed suicide in a drug, alcohol and publicity overdose. Uh, the whole hype just drove him crazy, said Jabriath. His lifestyle was hotel suites and limousines and enough drugs to get him from one to another. He was struck back by disappearing into thin air. Jabriath is dead and he had a reason for being. He was a vaccination for the rest of us. But, you know, I mean, if you look at that statement, you could take Jabriath out of there and put Ziggy Stardust yeah. in, couldn't you? Because that just um, that's the way that Bowie used to talk about Ziggy as well, wasn't it? Mm. How Ziggy drove him mad, how Ziggy was dead, you know, yeah. and how Ziggy kind of uh, <laughs> fooled everybody. And they, So, I mean, it is a bizarre kind of a, a comparison yeah. that can be made there. Yeah, yeah, the parallels are there, definitely. So, in November 2004, long-time Jabriath fan Morrissey oversaw Jabriath's first CD reissue, remember all this happening, a mm. compilation called Lonely Planet Boy and it was produced by Eddie Kramer and Morrissey had previously attempted to secure Jabriath as a support act for the tour in support of the Your Arsenal album having been unaware that the singer had died some years previously. When you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. J is for John Peel. Yeah, John Robert Parker Ravenscroft, to be exact, OBE. Born 30th of August 1939, died 25th of October 2004. Known professionally as John Peel, English DJ, of course, radio presenter, record producer and journalist. The longest serving of the original BBC Radio 1 DJs, broadcasting regularly from 1967 until his death in 2004. Yeah, so uh, John Peel was born in Heswell Cottage Hospital in Heswell on the Wirral Peninsula near Liverpool and grew up in nearby village of Burton. His father was an upper middle class cotton merchant and he was sent away to be educated as a boarder at Shrewsbury School. And one of his contemporaries was future Monty Python member Michael Palin. Yeah, the solitary Peel was an avid radio listener and record collector from a very early age, cutting his teeth on fare offered by the American Forces Network and Radio Luxembourg. He later recalled an early desire to host a radio programme of his own, and his quote here, so that I could play music that I heard and wanted others to hear. 
This is great. His housemaster, R.H.J. Brook, whom Peel described as extraordinarily eccentric and amazingly perceptive, wrote on one of his school reports, perhaps it's possible that John can form some kind of nightmarish career out of his enthusiasm for unlistenable records and his delight in writing long and facetious <laughs> essays. <laughs> Amazing. How perceptive, yeah, OK. So after finishing his national service in 1959 in the Royal Artillery as a B-2 radar operator, uh, John Peel worked as a mill operative at Townhead Mill in Rochdale, travelled home each weekend to Heswell on a scooter borrowed from his sister. Brilliant. So in 1960, age 21, he went to the United States to work for a cotton producer who had business dealings with his father. Once his job had finished, he took a number of others, including working as a travel insurance salesman, remaining in the United States until 1967. While in Dallas, Texas, where the insurance company he worked for was based, he conversed with the presidential candidate John F. Kennedy and his running mate Lyndon B. Johnson, who were touring the city during the 1960 election campaign and took photographs of them. So if you know uh, John Peel's autobiography, there's, fo- there's photos in there. They're amazing shots, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, Incredible. They are. Following Kennedy's assassination in November 63, Peel passed himself off as a reporter for the Liverpool Echo in order to attend the arraignment of Lee Harvey Oswald. And he and a friend can be seen in the footage of the uh, midnight press conference at Dallas Police Department on the 22nd stroke 23rd of November when Oswald was paraded before the media. He later phoned in the story to the Liverpool Echo. So he, he did pretend to be working for the Liverpool Echo, but then he ended up working for the Liverpool Echo. He did. Good work, John Peel. Uh, whilst working for the insurance company, Peel wrote programmes for punch card entry for an IBM 1410 computer, uh, which led to his entry in Who's Who, noting him as a former computer programmer. And he got his first radio job, albeit unpaid, working for WRRAM in Dallas. There he presented a second hour of the Monday night programme Cat's Caravan, which was primarily hosted by the American singer and radio personality Jim Lowe. After this, and as Beatlemania was really hit in the States, Peel got a job with the Dallas radio station KLIF as the official Beatles correspondent on the strength of his connection to Liverpool. He later worked for uh, KOMA in Oklahoma City until 1965 when he moved to KMEN in San Bernardino in California, using the name John Ravenscroft to present The Breakfast Show. You have to wonder, I mean, John had a little bit of that lilt, didn't he, from that part of the world, but yeah. you have to wonder whether he'd been training himself doing a bit of a Ringo impersonation just to, to, to convince everybody that he was Liverpool through and through, because let's face it, uh, Heswell is a little bit up the yeah, coast, isn't it? <laughs> It's not I mean, quite he's there, hard. is it? You know, yeah. he's, hard. he's not Ringo, is he? He's that was Ringo. terrible. No. Uh, Peel returned to England in early 1967 and found work with the offshore pirate radio station Radio London. He was offered the Midnight to Two shift, which gradually developed into a programme called The Perfume Garden. Legendary. Some thought he was named after an erotic book famous at the time, which Peel claimed never to have read. <laughs> um, it was on the Big L that he first adopted the name John Peel, and the name was suggested by a Radio London secretary, apparently, and he established himself as a distinctive radio voice while well, he did that. Definitely. Okay, we move on to his BBC career here. So when Radio London closed down in August 1967, Peel joined the BBC's new pop music station, BBC Radio 1, which began broadcasting a month later. And the rest, of course, is history. Yeah, so again, we're going to look at the Bowie timeline. So the 19th of May, there will be other entries in here which need to go in, but these are the ones that I can mm. find and actually date. 19th of May, 1968. Bowie appears at Middle Earth on the same bill as Tyrannosaurus Rex, 
Junior's Eyes, well, uh, Hapshash and the Coloured Coat, the Third Ear Band and John Peel was a compare. And he was probably quite keen on being there because he was big mates with Mark Boland, wasn't he? Mm. Uh, and the show of, uh, of David's, in particular, was the previously mentioned mime show about the Tibetan Book of the Dead and also involved in miming along to Silly Boy Blue. Well, bit of a <laughs> bit of a mishmash there. Yeah, certainly. So photographer Ray Stevenson was also there and he said later, my friend the Flames were playing. They were sharing their dressing room with David and with a room that size, you have to make friends. <laughs> Uh, I met David before he went on stage and I thought, oh, he's a nice man. I'll take some pictures of him. I took several pictures of him because I liked him as a person. I mean, this would be hard. I mean, he's doing mime, isn't he? A Buddhist, a, a Buddhist mimist. Yeah, if he was a right nasty git, he wouldn't really sit too comfortably with his philosophies, would no. it? And so Peel also went to the Beckenham Arts Lab in the company of T-Rex's Steve Peregrine Tuck. Uh, Sunday the 26th of May Top Gear presented by John Peel who at this time he wasn't a fan was he? No he wasn't so this is John Peel's quote here it says uh, this was during the Anthony Newley period of David's career which I didn't care for a great deal I played bits and pieces on the pirate ship and on Top Gear the sessions he'd done for Top Gear by and large have been because producer Bernie Andrews was keen on his work I wasn't but I had no influence on who did sessions Well that would change for him wouldn't Certainly. it? Um, but uh, yeah February 1969 Bowie goes off on tour with Tyrannosaurus Rex doing his mime act with John Peel once again as a compare. Peel dislikes Bowie's mime act so much he sets about trying to persuade him to drop it and concentrate on music. So he must have really, really hated the mime because he didn't even like his music either. No, he didn't. <laughs> OK, so this is uh, from DavidBowie.com. This is Bowie talking about Peel. Uh, this was on the occasion of John Peel's 60th birthday in which uh, the BBC aired an hour-long documentary about him, a special. Included in the special was a videotaped appearance by Bowie himself who wished Peel a happy birthday and told a story about how Peel once helped steer him in the right direction. And this is what he said. Dear John, when you worked with me on the T-Rex tour and I was doing a mime piece based on the invasion of Tibet by the Chinese, he was somewhat <laughs> nonplussed that the audience didn't like the piece where the back row of the audience lifted their hands up with Chairman Mao's little red book and there was a whole feud going on between me and the audience. You decided that the problem was that I was doing mime. You didn't like mime and until I came here to America I never realised that you were right. Nobody in the world likes mime. <laughs> Thanks for the advice about the songs. I'm glad I stayed with the songwriting and very happy birthday. <laughs> oh this is wonderful right so we go back to the timeline now. So this is Sunday the 6th of July 1969 uh, whilst Bowie is appearing at the Arts Lab in Beckenham, John Peel plays Space Oddity and Bowie decides to pounce on this act by writing to him and asking him to make a financial contribution to the Arts Lab mm. funds. Although uh, John often does this kind of thing, on this occasion he didn't respond at all. Right, OK. So Wednesday the 4th of February 1970, Bowie asks new guitarist Mick Bronson if he'll play guitar on a John Peel session to be recorded the following day. They have a quick rehearsal and... OK, so 5th of February, Ronson, Bowie, John Cambridge and Tony Visconti have a last minute rehearsal and then they whisk themselves off to the BBC's Paris Studios which is an ex-cinema on Lower Regent Street. The session is to be aired on the Sunday show and they play Amsterdam, Memory of a Free Festival, Width of a Circle uh, badly, according to Bowie later. Yeah, Ronson said of the session I didn't know any of the material. I was really nervous. I just followed David. I watched his fingers on the guitar. I guess it worked because he wanted me to work with him again. And Peel interviewed Bowie about such things as a Beckenham Arts Lab which Bowie admits to be a frustration to him because people just want to be entertained rather than join in. And Peel asked if his new band would go out on the road. This is great. At which point Bowie says, well, looking at them, no. Oh, laughs. He's kind of laughing. You know, yes, of course. He said, we're going to do some gigs. Are we Michael, so you're not even calling him uh, 
Mick, yeah, is he Mick no. Ronson? Michael doesn't really know. He's just come down from Hull and I met him for the first time about two days ago. Yeah, bless. So, uh, the 3rd of June, 1971, the famous Davy Bowie and Friends BBC session. Again, Paris Theatre, Dana Gillespie, George Underwood, Jeff McCormack, Mark Pritchett. And funnily enough, this time Trevor Boulder has only just joined the band, doesn't really know the songs too well. So we move on to Tuesday, the 11th of January, 72, the recorder session for John Peel once again, this time for Sounds of the 70s. So this is where it all changes for Bowie, really. The 29th of April, 1972, in his Disc and Music Echo column, John Peel says of Bowie's new single, Starman, now this is magnificent, quite superb. Davy Bowie is, with Kevin Ayres, the most important, under-acknowledged innovator of contemporary music in Britain, and if this record gets overlooked, it'll be nothing less than stark tragedy. Wow, okay, so the 16th of May now, 72, Bowie does another session for John Peel. So, you know, a reticent start, wasn't it? And and Peel didn't fancy him at all, but he stuck with him, you know, and and clearly, you know, it paid off. He knew talent when he saw it. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley, and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Mick Jagger, Junior's Eyes, Elton John, John Cambridge, Jimi Hendrix... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.